At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying his word together. Today, we invite you to tune in for our current series, Revealed, stories with purpose as we study the parables of Jesus, reading stories with the power to reveal God's truth in our lives. So great to be here worshiping with all of you. Cannot explain. This is my first uh, in-person Woodside worship. So you're like my inaugural team here for 2019. This is fantastic. I'm so excited. Um, thank you for having me. And, and I'm thankful for the air conditioning <laughs> this morning because it's been sweltering. Some of that's because of my hurricane, Hurricane Cristobal. That's rolling around there. But um, you're welcome for that. Ice cream, barbecues, slip and slides, all this is, is fun in the sun for us. And as many of you know, I'm the father of two boys. They're eight and ten years old, so they're a handful, but I want to tell you a story. Uh, one of these hot summer days, I hear something from the backyard, a call. It says, Daddy, the hose is broken. So I recognize the voice. It's my older son, Christian. And I yell back to him, no, it's not. I just used it. It's not broken. Have you tried turning it on? You got to ask those kind of questions. He says, yes, I turned it on. I thought it might be the sprinkler, so I took that off, but it, it, there's still not working. There's no water. And so as I come around the corner, I'm, I'm making my way to the backyard. This is what I see. Can we put this picture up? Yeah. <laughs> That's my youngest son, Caleb, and obviously he is kinking the hose <laughs> with a huge smile on his face. And I chuckle to myself, and I continue along, and I finally get my oldest son in my sights, and then I see this. Let's put this other one up. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> He's trying to figure out what's wrong. He's holding the hose up to his face so that he can peer down inside of it. Now, what's about to happen here? My sweet Christian <laughs> is about to get doused <laughs> with the truth. Right, that this hose is not broken at all, that, that there's just something that is kinking it. There, there's something that he's not seeing, something that he didn't notice. And in, in a moment's time, he is going to have the reality of this situation thrown into his face. And it is going to be shocking. <laughs> it's going to be a complete surprise to him. He, for some reason, he never saw this coming. It's actually a lot like the parable that we're going to read about today. As we continue looking at Jesus' teaching in the Gospel of Luke, we read another parable that, just like all the other ones that, that, that we've been studying together, it has an unexpected twist at the end of it, something that you just, you never seen coming. And so if you haven't already, please join me in your Bibles. In Luke chapter 16, you're welcome to get out your phones, your iPads, uh, any electronic device you'd like to use, but find yourself in, in, in the book of Luke chapter 16. And as you find your place, I'm just going to give you a little bit of context, catch you up so you understand what it is that's going on here, because Jesus is addressing a group of people called the Pharisees. And so they're like the super, uber-religious type people who, who actually really took a lot of pride in themselves in creating um, and enforcing many, many different rules, different laws that had to be followed. And as you know, when, when this kind of legalism is in place... When this becomes the focus, as you begin jumping through these hoops, these spiritual hoops of legalism, you begin to climb this kind of spiritual ladder, right? You think you're getting closer to God because of how good you are and, and what you're doing. 
And when you do that, as you are climbing this spiritual ladder, guess what? It becomes really easy then to turn around and look down your nose at those who are beneath you. Because they're just not as holy as you are. And there's one issue in particular that Jesus has been trying to tackle. He's been trying to go after this full force with the Pharisees, and that's the issue of money. Uh, When the Pharisees heard Jesus teaching on money, that you cannot serve two masters, you cannot serve both God and money, they ridiculed him for it. Because it says they were lovers of money in, in verses 13 through 15. So we wouldn't fall into those traps today, would we? We wouldn't place our faith in in ourselves, in in our own power and ability, in our own accomplishments and the things that that we do, would we? Because that's not true faith. What we're going to see today is that real faith obeys God's word. A real faith is one that obeys God's word. But what does that look like, right? I mean, that's nice to say, but what does it look like as this is actually lived out in our daily lives and in the futures to come. Well, Jesus' story has two important truths and then this kind of concluding reality that helps us to see that a real faith is one that obeys God's word. So let's read this together. Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 19. says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm. It has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. So the first important truth that we see here is that our final destiny is the result of our belief. Our final destiny is the result of our belief. Jesus begins his parable by describing a rich man. In fact, he's so rich that he wears purple clothing all of the time. Now, just to give you an idea of what that means, the purple dye, it came from a mollusk, came from a seashell, and you got one drop of purple dye from one shell. So just imagine how many shells it takes to make even a square yard of this deep, rich, purple cloth. And that's why purple clothing was was a symbol of great wealth. Only the wealthiest people could afford it. And then, interestingly enough, this word that's translated fine linen here is actually talking about his underwear. Yeah, you heard me. (laughs) So Jesus says this maybe tongue-in-cheek a little bit. Even this guy's underwear is designer, right? He's not rocking fruit of the looms here. He's got fine linen. 
right? And this isn't even a Sunday best, right? He, he dresses like this. He dresses extravagantly to the nines, outerwear and underwear, all the time, constantly. His wealth was always put up on display in the way that he dressed, but that's not all, because he also made it a point to feast sumptuously every day. And what this is describing is actually a banquet. If you remember, Jesus has already mentioned a a couple of different banquets uh, from the previous chapter in, in Luke 15. Most notably, or at least most familiar to most of us, there's the parable of the generous father and his sons. And when the prodigal son comes home, verse 23 tells us, he said, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and let us celebrate. And then he says it again in verse 24. And they began to celebrate. Now that word is the same word that's translated feast here. So what I want you to understand is this is is a big thing. This, This is a big, lavish banquet. It is a celebration, a sumptuous spread of food is across this table. And this is, a, this is something that most people would be able to enjoy and experience on a very special occasion. But the rich man, he feasts like this every day. And then, in complete contrast to this picture, to this guy, Jesus then describes a poor man. Now, this man does not live in palaces and in the homes of the elite. Instead, he is laid at the rich man's gate. Why? Because this is their welfare system, right? In their culture, it was understood that the wealthier people, those who were well off, took care of the poor. In fact, this is written into God's law, right? We see it in the giving of alms to the poor. We read about it as the farmers would leave the edges of their field unharvested. Why? So that the poor could come and glean food. And most commentators make note that because this man is laid, or it's a strong word, dumped at this man's gate, that he's in very poor physical condition, unable to get around on his own, probably even crippled. Either way, he's not doing very well physically because what we do know for sure is that while the rich man is clothed in purple and fine linen, while that is what covers his body, Lazarus is covered in sores. Nobody pays attention to him. Nobody shows any sort of compassion for him, except for the dogs. Apparently, even the dogs have more compassion for Lazarus than the rich man did. And these unclean, right, wild pack animals are there for a reason, because when, when you or your servants or whoever you had were done eating, you would clean up. You'd clean up the table and everything, you had the mess that you made at this big banquet and this feast. And you'd take all that food that fell from your table, all of the scraps and the leftovers, and you'd throw it out with the garbage, knowing that the dogs and the wild animals would come and, and, and eat what they wanted. So when it says that Lazarus was hoping that he might be fed with what fell from the rich man's table, understand, he's not at the table. He's not under the table. He's not at the banquet at all. He is outside. He is far away. He is at the gate. And so his hope is that he will be able to get some food from the rich man's garbage. Listen, he's hoping he can eat some of the dog food. 
you cannot find two more opposite people, two more opposite characters than this. This is the scene that Jesus sets up for us. And then in verse 22, we are told about the only thing that these two opposite characters have in common, and that is that they both die. Their lives come to an end. And this, this is where the tables turn, right? This is where things get turned upside down. Here's where Jesus unkinks the hose, so to speak, right? And they, the Pharisees that are listening to this, they get doused with reality. And what they hear is shocking. It catches them completely off guard because he says, and this is foreign to our modern ears, but he says that Lazarus, the poor man, is carried away by angels to Abraham's side. Now, let me try and help us understand this. You see, different cultures have different ideas, uh, different rules, right, about how close we can get to someone. In fact, right now, we're going through this strange season (laughs) where the acceptable social distancing is like six feet, right? But typically, here in the U.S., when you know someone well, you run up and you, you give them a big hug, right? If it's a stranger, if you're just meeting for the first time, you might settle, hey, hi, nice to meet you, a little handshake. But in France... Completely different, right? Yet in France, you might greet a complete stranger with kisses on their cheeks. Different rules. And so you understand these human contact rules vary from place to place, right? From culture to culture, even season to season. But it's really important for us to understand them. And here the importance is twofold. So first, this seems to be describing another banquet scene, a heavenly banquet scene. And second, Lazarus is given at this banquet a seat of honor, a place of honor, a position of honor at the side of Abraham. So we read about something similar to this in John chapter 13 when when Jesus and the 12 disciples, uh, they are enjoying a traditional Jewish feast celebrating the Passover together. And Jesus is about to explain to them, he's about to tell them that, hey, he's going to become the Passover lamb. He is going to become the one who is sacrificed for all of God's people. And they're all reclined at this table, and Jesus is sitting there. He's he's leaning back, and at his right side is John, who's, who's called the beloved disciple. It's this place of honor for a distinguished guest at your banquet. And so having never been invited to a feast or a banquet having been perpetually and purposefully ignored by human beings in life, Lazarus is carried by angels in death. And he is carried directly to the side of Abraham where he is enjoying this heavenly feast. Wow. See, no one is going to slip into heaven unnoticed. No one. I mean, that's why Lazarus is named here. This is the only parable where one of the characters is named. And so, first of all, the name Jesus picks for this character is important. It means the one that is helped by God. That is what Lazarus means, the one who's helped by God. It's just one more way that Jesus draws this stark contrast between these two people. Lazarus is known and he is noticed by God because he's a child of God through faith. And the other guy, just a rich man. 
And so this rich man dies, and he goes to Hades. He goes to hell, where he is experiencing constant torment. Come on! To the Pharisees who are listening to Jesus tell this story, this just doesn't make sense. This is absurd. After all, I mean, wasn't the rich man rich because God was blessing him with all these things? Wasn't his wealth, his prosperity, his success a symbol of of God's favor on him? And and likewise, the poor man, isn't he being punished for sin? I I mean, whether it's his own or, or maybe, you know, if he was born this way, maybe it was even the sin of his father or his grandfather generations before him. But isn't that the way things work? Isn't that how it goes? Shock. And as the rumblings begin to circulate amongst the Pharisees, Jesus continues in verse 24, the rich man, who can apparently see Lazarus and Abraham in paradise, calls out, and what would you expect the rich man to say here? Hey, this isn't fair. I don't deserve this. I think you've got the wrong guy. There's been a terrible mistake. He doesn't say any of that because he knows that's not true. The only thing he asks for is some mercy. The kind of mercy, by the way, which in life he gave none. See, he doesn't just know Abraham. He also knows Lazarus by name. He knew exactly who Lazarus was, and why wouldn't you? I mean, th- this poor man was a permanent fixture at his gate. Of course he knew who Lazarus was, and now the rich man is asking Abraham to send Lazarus with just a drop of water to cool his tongue. Now, as a side note, this also seems to indicate that Lazarus was healed, right? After all, how could a cripple who couldn't get around in life bring this rich man some water? unless he was healed. Furthermore, this rich man would even want water from the dirty beggar whose whose body is still covered in sores at this point. I don't think so. And here's why. Because what is very obvious here is that this rich man's heart has not changed. It has not changed at all. He, He hasn't confessed that he did wrong. He hasn't cried out for forgiveness because the truth is he still, even in the afterlife, even in hell, thinks very highly of himself. So, oh, he he may acknowledge Lazarus by name, but he still only thinks of him as a menial servant. Nothing more than someone to do his bidding, to relieve him of his pain. And Abraham's response here is chilling. In verse 25, he begins by addressing the rich man as child. No doubt this is supposed to be ironic here, right? Because he may have genetically been a child of Abraham. He may have even participated in the faith that was handed down to him, but he was not a son of Abraham by faith. And so Abraham gives this kind of summary of their lives, right? If this was a movie, this would be like the flashback moment. He says, child, remember, Remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And then he says in verse 26, and besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from here to there. There is no crossing from heaven to heaven to hell, or hell 
to heaven. You see, hell is not a remedial punishment, right? This is not a time out. This is not a, hey, go to the corner and, and think about what you did. This is not a temporary state of purgatory where you pay for your sins, but eventually you get to go to heaven. That's not the way Jesus describes the situation. He says, where we find ourselves in the afterlife is fixed. It is certain, it is permanent, and it is eternal. Heavy stuff. And the point that Jesus is making is that our final destiny, where we find ourselves, is the result of our belief. And even more specifically, how we act on that belief here and now. And this is where it really hits home for us today. Because there are many people who, just like the rich man, they might call themselves Christians, right? Because, you know, they, they, they come to church every now and then. They, they sing some, some worship songs. They might even give some money. They even believe that Jesus existed. But apart from an hour or so on a Sunday, you would never know it. Their lives are not different at all. The way that they live their lives doesn't point people to the kingdom of God. They don't love, they don't give of themselves, they don't serve others, and listen, they don't want to. They don't want to be inconvenienced. They are happy with, with the superficial, nominal Christianity. But true Christianity, true salvation is not about believing certain facts, data, or information to be true. It involves living as if it were true. You know, in Matthew's gospel account, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. It's very similar to what the rich man is saying. Father Abraham, hey. Later on, James would write in his epistle something that no doubt many of us have memorized. A faith without works is dead. A faith without works is dead. And yet, how many times has the church looked the other way? How many times has the church failed to provide for someone in need, someone who's in our own backyard, someone who's in our own community, our own proverbial doorstep or gate? Craig Blomberg is a New Testament scholar, professor at Denver Seminary. He has some interesting thoughts on this. He says, first, uh, he's, he's noting the, the individual responsibility that we all have. And he says, the countless professing Christians today who give little or nothing to help the desperately poor and sick of our world while spending huge amounts of money on recreation, on entertainment, on shopping, sports, eating out, cars, and homes with far more than they can ever need or use, they form frightening parallels to the rich man in this passage. Then he notes the, the corporate responsibility that we all share uh, in being a part of the church today and saying that the number of supposedly Bible-believing churches that spend equally profane percentages of their annual budgets on facilities and staff salaries and building projects and programs merely to service those who are already saved while giving pathetically small amounts to the physically or spiritually needy abroad or at home, well, that may even be more scandalous. And he's right. And so you should know we take this very seriously. 
at Woodside Bible Church. It's why, as a church, we are committed to serving those in need through Woodside Cares and various groups. We're using our benevolence funds to help those who need it. It's why we have global partnerships all around the world working to advance the gospel, to reach the lost for the kingdom of God. It's why we encourage our life groups These groups that meet in your homes all throughout the week to intentionally think about how they can serve in each of your communities and and how you can meet your neighbors and your networks by putting the gospel on display through both words and works, by both demonstration and declaration. And there's so many ways you can do this. There's, There's so many ways that you can give of your time, your money, and your talents to serve in the kingdom of God, but it's up to you. It's up to you to move forward in faith. It's up to you to take that next step and to actually get involved. The the point is that each one of us is called to demonstrate generosity so that together we can meet the needs of, of those who are around us. We can love our neighbors as ourselves. So if our final destiny is the result of our belief, and not just our belief, but our belief as it is lived out in this is life, here and now, then we should be wise to ask the question, what am I to believe? How do I know what to believe? How do I know what to do so that I don't end up in hell, in, in eternal torment? And this is the second truth of the parable, that revelation has been given to direct us. Revelation has been given to direct us. Let's continue reading in verse 27. This is the rich man speaking. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that they may be warned, or they, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into a, this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should raise from the dead. So notice, now it's the rich man who's become the beggar. The tables have turned, and realizing that his place in hell is permanent, it's not, he's not going anywhere, it is fixed, he then becomes concerned for his family, for his brothers. He does not want them to experience what he is experiencing, what he is now subjected to in hell. So he says, fine, I understand this is fixed. There's this chasm between us and no one can cross over from heaven to hell or hell to heaven. I get it, so send him back. Send him back to warn my family what's happened to me so that they can change their ways. Don't we tend to think like this? Can't we relate to where he's coming? I mean, maybe you have friends or even family who, who don't seem to know the Lord. And so you ask, you say, please, God, please give him a sign. God, give him a miracle. That's, that's what they need so that they can repent and come to saving faith. But Abraham's response in verse 29 is telling. He, he's not going to interrupt Lazarus' joy in paradise, in heaven. And it's not because he doesn't want to see them saved. It's because they have Moses and the prophets to direct them. The rich man does not believe this is enough. He believes they need to see a miracle 
And so he responds. He says, no, someone needs to show up for the dead in order for them to repent. And the implication is clear. Listen, the rich man does not think the scriptures are enough for them because they weren't enough for him. But Abraham's answer in verse 31 is clear. If they aren't listening to scripture, even if a person comes back from the dead to warn them, it will not convince them. And of course, as Jesus is telling the story, he's speaking prophetically here, right? He, he understands, he knows that even after he is raised from the dead, there will be many who will not believe. And the point that Abraham makes is that if your brothers want to know how to avoid hell, the scriptures are really clear about that. So they should consult and they should act upon the revelation which God has so graciously given to them. I want you to understand that this is good news for us today. This is good news because think about it. They only had the Old Testament scriptures, right? And I understand that all of it, all of the Old Testament points forward in time to the coming of God's promised Messiah. But understand, it used types to do that. It used shadows It did so indiscreetly, indirectly. We have so much more than that. We have the full revelation of God. We have the gospels. We have the epistles and the revelation. We have the New Testament to explain and spell out for us in plain detail that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is the promised Messiah of God. And so what that means is if we were in this story, If we were the one pleading with Abraham for our family members, he would say, don't you have a Bible at home? Or maybe even more condemning than that, don't you have a smartphone? Hey, don't you have internet access? Because the Bible has never been more accessible than it is now. So if anyone finds themselves facing hell on judgment day, it will certainly not be because there was not enough revelation. There was not sufficient witness for them to know that Jesus Christ is Lord. God has carefully preserved his word throughout the ages. Now the question for us is what are we going to do with it? That's the question we all have to ask ourselves. The last point, what will you do with what God has revealed. Look, these are heavy topics. Heaven and hell are very real. Jesus speaks of both of these eternal realities. But he came as a great missionary. He came to seek and save the lost. And so you might surprise you, but Jesus taught more about hell than he did about heaven. And he warned about how difficult it is for the wealthy to enter heaven, that our love of money, our love of stuff, it just, it so easily kinks our hose. It so easily gets in the way, blinding us to the truth of God's word and preventing us potentially from entering paradise with our Lord. Hell is very real. Now, are the flames in fire to be taken literally? Maybe. I mean, it's possible, but I don't think so. Um, listen, when I say that, sometimes people, it, you can almost hear like a, oh, whew, what a relief. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that 
the flames, I think, are used as an image. They're used as a symbol or a metaphor that Jesus clings onto to describe what hell is like. But the reality is far worse. Just, just like when John, right, he, he's transported into heaven and, and he comes back and he reports of heaven. He says, there's, there's pearly gates and there's streets of gold and, and, and jewels everywhere. But the reality is, it is beyond words, right? I mean, he's stretching the human language to its limits in an attempt to describe something that is infinitely greater, something that cannot be described and comprehended by the human mind. And the same is true here. When Jesus is looking for a way to describe what hell is like, he looks around. He says, it's like living in an eternal fire forever. But the actual reality is that it is incomparable. It is, it is indescribable. It is far worse than we can ever imagine. And at the end of the parable, this is where the rich man is left. He is in pain. He is in agony. And he has this unquenchable thirst. Listen, because anyone who builds their lives on anything other than God is left completely and wholly unsatisfied. They're always needing more. Even though they're constantly drinking on their wealth or their success or their education, they're constantly drinking on their status or their sexuality or their superiority complex and the power that they have over others. They're always drinking of these things and yet they're never satisfied because only God can quench their thirst. I say that because this should give us a new appreciation for the love that Jesus displayed on the cross. Twice on the cross, Jesus cries out in pain. But he never talks about the physical pain. Right? Even though that's what we tend to focus on as human beings, he doesn't, he doesn't say, you know, my head hurts from, from the thorns or my back from the flogging. He doesn't say, my, my hands and, and my feet, they hurt from the nails. No, when he cries out in pain, the source of his pain is this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the only time in all of Scripture Jesus does not refer to God as his Father. And that is the deepest source of his pain. And then he cries out once more. He says, I thirst. I thirst. Do you see? These are the same cries of the rich man as he is in hell. It's all wrapped up in this idea that the source of life, the fountain of living water has now been denied. But Jesus endures the cross. As the wrath of God for the sins of the world is placed on his shoulders, he endures the cross in your place as a substitutionary atonement for your sins. And because of this, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He was abandoned so that you would never be forsaken. He was condemned so that you could be forgiven. He was cast out so that you would be brought in. Jesus died so that you might live. Oh, it's our hope. It is our assurance 
that on our last day, when our time here on earth is up, because of the person and work of Jesus, because of his perfect righteousness on your behalf, that you too will go to heaven and you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Friends, we praise God for that. We believe that to be true. But then our belief demands action. It demands obedience. Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10 say it this way. We're saved not by our works, but by God's grace. In order that we can do the good works that God has prepared for us to walk in. See, real faith obeys God's word. So as we hear the word of God today, family, let's continue to respond. Let's continue to respond to the leading of God's spirit with faith and with action. Let's continue to walk in the good works that the Lord has placed carefully before us. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much for the gift of your word today. We thank you for helping us see, for helping us see what we cannot see on our own, that, that when we are left to our own devices, we are blind. And so we see that maybe, just, just maybe, our theological hose has gotten kinked. And before we even realized it, God, we found ourselves all caught up in the world, in our business, in our politics, in money, in all kinds of things. So God, thank you for the conviction of your spirit today. Thank you for loving us enough to discipline your children, even if it means unkinking the hose. And we are left shocked. We, because we never saw it coming, but God, it is so refreshing. And we know that it was worth it because we want to please you. We desire to know and experience more of you. God, sanctify your church, we pray. Forgive us. Forgive us for our greed. Forgive us of our pride, our arrogance, our selfishness. Forgive us for all the times we turned a blind eye towards someone in need and God, grant us strength to go on. Grant us strength to persevere, to continue by faith, to give, to love, to, to sacrifice in Jesus' name. It's by the power of the Spirit and for your glory that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together this week. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and to get you connected to the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org forward slash connect to introduce yourself today.